So this is taken from Mark chapter 1, it's verses 21 to uh, 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Amen. So we are continuing our journey through Mark's gospel. And we come today to one of the first encounters, though there are many that we will see soon, between Jesus and evil. And we live in a spiritual world. What we see with our eyes around us isn't everything that there is. And more people, even in the West, even in 2023, believe that's true than many might imagine. A 2021 UK survey of 2,000 adults found that 48% of people are influenced by their star sign. And a third of them make financial decisions based on horoscopes. Talk of manifesting is really common now. If you get onto Netflix and you know, watch the most popular thing at the moment, you won't be listening for long before there'll be talk of the universe or energy or manifesting something good for someone. A friend of mine from school, uh, ardently non-Christian, very firm in that, was adamant that his St. Christopher's necklace would protect him when he traveled. Now, we might believe in that. We believe in the saints and things. But he didn't believe in it. But he did believe in the necklace. He didn't believe in the faith or the saint or the God. But he did want there to be something protecting him as he traveled. More people, even in the West, even in 2023, agree that we're in a spiritual world than many would readily let on. The Bible shows us that what happens here on earth is directly influenced by what happens in the spiritual realm that we can't see every day with our eyes. What goes on here is impacted by what goes on there. And Jesus, who we worship today, and who is amongst us right now by the power of his Holy Spirit, is Lord over everything, seen and unseen. Different realms that we know about, the ones that we're less sure about or know not quite so much about. The positive, healthy, pure spiritual beings and forces worship Jesus too and align themselves behind what he's wanting to do, his plans and his purposes. But there are negative, unhealthy, impure spiritual beings and forces who are set against Jesus and who are set against everything good that Jesus wants to achieve. They might do that really overtly and really obviously. Or they might be a little more insidious and twist things, manipulate things in order to distort people's perception of God. 
or to cause what they're doing for him to be mocked or imitated. However evil comes, overtly or more insidiously, these forces are all set up against God. And evil ultimately always seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. Before I look through the passage that Dave read for us, I want to give us a little framework, if you like, for how we think about approaching evil in general. Each of us knows that this world isn't perfect. Each of us feels the consequences of there being evil each day, each week. We pray that it will go. We pray for the grace to sustain ourselves and for God to sustain us as we go through it. But each of us knows the effect of evil. How, as Christians, do we then approach it? Well, I think there are three dimensions to it, a kind of past, present, future dimensions to it. And if you want to, these would be good headings and passages to jot down. So how do we approach evil? First, we remember that Jesus has won over evil at the cross. Jesus has defeated evil through the sacrifice that he made as he gave himself over willingly to death. Colossians 1 and 2 are great chapters to delve into if you want to find out more about this. Colossians 2 from verse 13 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus ultimately has cut the root off all evil. He has defeated it on the cross, and that has implications then until he returns. Evil will not win. It will not prevail against Jesus. He has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In biblical times, when a military victory was won, the way that that would be kind of announced and celebrated is by parading the defeated leader through the city for everyone to scorn and to laugh at and to mock. And the imagery here is similar that Jesus makes a public spectacle that evil is now defeated. He drags it through the city center. And every time we see the cross, we can remember that evil is ultimately won over because Jesus has absorbed it into himself on the cross and put it to death. First thing in our framework then, Jesus has won over evil at the cross. Secondly, Jesus is defeating evil here and now. 1 John 3 verse 8 says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The work of Jesus when he was here in physicality on earth And the work of Jesus through his people, you and me, and everyone through all time and across the world who proclaims him as Lord, the work of Jesus is to destroy the devil's work. Jesus is very clear that there is a spiritual opposition. He was tempted by the devil, wasn't he, right at the beginning of his ministry. 
He confronted evil in instances like this and lots of others. And his work was to unpick evil at every turn. Where evil had caused people to have ill health, he went and healed. Where evil had caused people to have a wrong perception of who God was, he taught to correct them. Jesus was about destroying the devil's work. Everything that would oppose Jesus, he is at work now obliterating. And he uses us to see that happen. That explains why there is evil. Why we experience it day to day and week to week. But Jesus is not inactive in that. He is pushing the darkness back as his kingdom grows and expands. And the kingdom of light takes over the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is here and now defeating evil. And he's inviting us to come and be part of that as we submit to him and bring light to dark places. Second dimension then, Jesus is defeating evil here and now. Third dimension, Jesus will end evil when he returns. We believe that Jesus is coming back. We don't know when that's going to happen. Though the Bible gives us some clues. We don't have a date and a time. We're to be ready for it whenever it happens. And when Jesus comes back, evil will be ended. The kingdom that he talks about forever, the kingdom of heaven, is a place where every tear is wiped from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things, where there was still the shadow of evil, has passed away. Revelation 21 and 22 would be amazing chapters to, to meditate on and pour over in this respect. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the kingdom that Jesus is bringing about, every curse, every evil, is done away with. There will be no more of it. There won't even be darkness, shadow, night, because Jesus, the light of the world, will be present, and it will be perpetually light because we will be in his presence. Do not lose sight that the future Jesus is taking us towards is one where there is no evil. So as we approach evil, as we'll see in the passage in a moment, remember that Jesus has won over evil at the cross. The cross's effect has not been diluted or changed. It's just as powerful today as it was the moment Jesus was put on it. Remember that Jesus is defeating evil here and now. He does not look on indifferent when he sees people starving or hungry, mistreated, abused. Jesus is defeating evil coming against it in ways that we can't see often, but also in ways that we can. As we join him in his work, evil is being defeated until such a point as he will end evil when he returns. There will be no more curse. There'll be no more night or shadow or darkness because Jesus will come. Let's take a moment now to walk through the passage that we have for today with that in our minds 
and that confrontation that we will see bringing those together. Mark 1, beginning at verse 21. It says, they went to Capernaum. They is this emerging band of followers. We remember last week, don't we? Some disciples were called. I think at this point in Mark, we've got four disciples. James and John and Simon and Andrew. And this little group of five or so go to Capernaum. For the next few chapters in Mark, Jesus is still calling disciples until the point in Mark 3 where he's got his 12 and he's ready to go. And straight away, he has them go to this new place. And when they got to Capernaum, they headed straight for the synagogue, the place of worship of God. And he wanted to teach them, so he set about teaching them. And the teaching that he gave amazed them because it had power and authority. This was Jesus teaching from the mouth of God himself. And everyone else's teaching paled into insignificance almost because of the power and the might and the wonder that Jesus brought about. Jesus taught about himself. He taught about his father and he taught completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. And there was a weight and authority to what he said because they'd never heard anything like it before. At that moment, it says, a man possessed by an evil or unclean spirit cries out to Jesus in the hearing of everyone. Now, we don't know, we're not told explicitly what influence this evil spirit had upon this man. Normally, it would say someone who was deaf because of the influence of an evil spirit or something like that. We don't get a kind of picture of how this had affected this man. But it is interesting for us to note that this was someone who was coming to the synagogue. Now, of course, someone could have been there to disrupt it. Someone could have been there inquiring about what faith really was. But the implication is that this person was a worshipper of God because they were in the synagogue on the Lord's day, what would become the Lord's day. They were listening to Jesus teach from the scriptures. An evil spirit affected someone who was worshipping God. Now we can talk through that and the dimensions of that more fully later. The evil spirit cries out to Jesus in the hearing of everyone, What do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us, the evil spirits? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now, we've already read, haven't we, from 1 John 3, Jesus came to destroy the works of darkness and the devil. So, of course, have you come to destroy us? The answer is yes. But Jesus didn't want to let on in that moment what his great plan was. The evil spirit says that they knew who Jesus was. Now, I've heard Bible teachers say that evil spirits have better theology than most of us. They know who Jesus is. There's no doubt in their mind his power, his authority, his supremacy over everything. Obviously, they're falling quite short in the act of obedience and lining up to that, but their, their thinking is actually quite clear. They know that they can't confront Jesus because he's more powerful than they are. There's many Christians who probably don't have quite the sense of God's power and authority as many evil spirits do. And Jesus, in response, says, be quiet. Come out of him. And the evil spirit came out, shaking the man violently. We'll see throughout Mark, particularly the early stages, that for a time Jesus wanted to keep a bit of a lid on things. He might do a healing and then say, don't tell anyone about what's happened. And we get a sense of that here. Be quiet. Jesus wasn't trying to make a spectacle of this. 
because he knew that the time for that wasn't yet right. Adrian spoke really well last week about the difference between sort of chronological time that just ekes away and a moment in time where God wants to do something. And the sense is that this wasn't the moment for him to announce who he really was to the fullness of the crowd. But Jesus was compassionate to this one man. I almost get the impression that Jesus following Jesus' plan was, I don't really want to do much that's too public and is going to draw too much attention to me yet. But then he sees this person who's afflicted and it's almost like his compassion beats that out. Jesus doesn't want this man to be afflicted anymore. So he says, be quiet, evil spirit. Come out of him. Jesus had immense compassion on him and the ravaging effect that this evil spirit was obviously having on his life. And so he commanded the spirit to leave, which the spirit did because Jesus is Lord over everything. As the spirit left, it says it shook him violently. In a different translation of this same verse, it says the spirit tore this man up. And I love that image of tearing because it gets to the heart of what the evil spirit is there to do. He wants to tear us up. He doesn't want wholeness and togetherness and healing. He wants to break things apart, good things apart. Evil spirits want to tear up your health. They want to tear apart your family. They want to destroy your peace. They want to tear up your finances. They want to tear up your future, your ministry now. The evil spirit's intention for you, for everything good, is to tear it apart and leave it broken and shattered. They want nothing good for you. And they don't want you to really know who God is or what he could do through someone like you. So the people, having been amazed at Jesus' teaching because of the authority that came from it, are now double amazed because they've seen an embodiment of that teaching right in front of their eyes. Someone with authority, someone with visible power, used with love. And this wasn't given so much as a demonstration to follow, I think, at this point. That will come later where Jesus says, you go and do what I've done. I think Jesus was still trying to keep a bit of a lid on things. But it vindicated that this was someone to take note of. This isn't a normal teacher because his teaching's got great authority. And then he went and backed it up with action. The church today, I believe, has got to take that seriously. Yes, we need good teaching, good apologetics, good ways of showing people why faith is a a rational step based on good evidence. But we also need great power. Some people need to see the acts of God before they'll investigate the claims of God. And I think for too long, the church, particularly in the West, has relied on teaching and thinking and getting that right, which I love and am passionate about. But maybe we've neglected the fact that Jesus might be able to change something in you right now. That you might walk into somewhere with one thing afflicting you and you might walk out free. I would love for this church to be a place where both of those are held high. Teaching and truth and power and demonstration all bounded, of course, in love. Jesus didn't make a spectacle of this man. He didn't accuse him of doing anything wrong, interestingly. The impression is more that this person was a victim. They were afflicted. And so Jesus comes with compassion, not to make a spectacle of them or of him, but in love and compassion and mercy. And of course, as would be the case anywhere, despite Jesus saying, be quiet, news spread throughout the region. 
The moment you tell someone to keep something to themselves, oftentimes that pours fuel onto the fire. And of course, when you start to hear of a man who teaches in a way that nobody else has, who demonstrates and backs it up in a way that no one else could, news spreads fast. So what are we to make of all of this today? I've talked about evil in big terms. We've walked through what happened in this passage. But what are we to make of it really? There are three things that come to me, maybe three dimensions of kind of response, questions that I imagine might be bubbling up in your minds even now. The first is, isn't all of this just a primitive medical understanding? Evil spirits, aren't they what we would now call mental health problems or other medically diagnosable things? I want to read you the foreword of a book that I found really helpful in preparing for this. For over 30 years, my, la- my wife lived with chronic illness. We saw every type of doctor you could imagine, lost count of how many treatments and therapies we tried, spent thousands of dollars, based in the US, gave up all hope of her getting better, and started making plans for an early death. I was in my mid-30s making plans to be a single father. Then we discovered a generational curse. Four generations ago, a shaman in Mexico City had been hired to curse the firstborn daughters of my wife's family line. We knew there was a lot of sickness and death in her extended family, but had never connected the dots. We immediately looked back and realized every single firstborn daughter for four generations had either died young or been struck with chronic debilitating illness all the way down to my wife. So this guy got in touch with the author of the book. He was then able to arrange a session for prayer and for deliverance. And he goes on to say, I'd never seen anything like it. Part of my wife's illness involved facial spasms due to a movement disorder. During the prayer to break the generational curse, my wife's entire body began to spasm and shake, worse than we've ever seen. The moment she prayed to break the curse, her entire body stopped shaking. Her eyes, which were spasming so badly that they couldn't open, opened wide. It was like watching a fog lift off her entire body. Her back straightened, her facial muscles were perfectly still. She started to laugh with joy. Of course, we tested the healing. Wait and see, I said. But she was completely healed. All symptoms gone. Decades of chronic health issues ended in an instant. That happened in the West, in Oregon, in the States. Someone afflicted by this generational curse. Who, the curse which was causing medical implications, but had a spiritual root. In that book, the author tries to draw together what they see as the difference maybe between evil spirits and demons and that sort of thing, and our understanding of medicine today. He says this, a better reflection of biblical emphasis would be to approach people's needs holistically, taking into account a range of physical, medical, and mental factors. 
but not discounting the possibility of demonic roots in what might otherwise be considered simply natural phenomena. We're in an age today that wants to be able to explain everything. We want to be able to explain why people would have short lifespans. And yes, we've made massive medical advances, but we live in a spiritual world with a spiritual dimension to things that we can't see, but is very real. So yes, some of what happened in the New Testament, maybe we would now call schizophrenia. But who's to say that the root of the schizophrenia isn't just as unclean as the evil spirit that they called it here? I'm not saying it's always caused by that, but I'm not ruling the possibility out. I don't believe that every time we see unclean spirit, we can just overlay now mental health, debilitating illness. I believe that there are spiritual roots to physical things, and we've got to take both seriously. Take the medicine, see the doctors, but pray and look back and seek God. What's at the heart of this, God, and what do I need from you in order to walk through it? Is it grace to struggle through something difficult, to keep going with a thorn in the flesh like Paul experienced? Or is it your dynamic power to end this once and for all? In my curacy uh, in Salford, uh, someone got in touch to say that their child had been having really bad dreams and they wondered whether there was something strange going on in their house. And so in consultation with specialists and people in the diocese who work in this area all the time, we met with her and started to find out what had been happening, asked lots of questions. And it turns out that this little boy had seen a part of a film that he really shouldn't have seen. His mum was watching it late one night and he'd come into the room and she hadn't realised he was there. And it was one of those films, you know, 18 slash 18 plus, you know, the kind of films that scar you. And he'd seen something in that that he was then recalling every night as he went to bed. So on one hand, you could say, well, there's a physical, natural cause to his bad dreams. But equally... The film was evil, and what it was depicting was evil, and the enemy, I think, was bringing that back to mind every night as he went to sleep. So there was a natural response that we could make. Don't watch the film again. Be careful who's in the room. And there was a spiritual response we could make. Jesus, please heal this child's memories. Cleanse this place if there's any residue of that in it. And that's what we were able to do, and he was able to sleep, and they found peace. A physical memory brought about in terms of the film, but compounded in his life by evil. We didn't just do one or the other, we did both. Because however we find the peace and healing that Jesus has got for us is good. So first thing then, in terms of what are we to make of this, is this all just a primitive medical understanding? Ultimately, I think the answer is no. There are things going on here, and there are things still going on today that have a spiritual root. And whilst we celebrate and we avail ourselves of all the medical advances that we've made, we don't cut the spiritual root off or say that it has no influence. Second thing is a, an invitation, I guess, to us about what we should do. And we're aware of a world and a dimension that we can't see. I'd say that we shouldn't be afraid, but we do need to be alert. We're not here to be afraid. Jesus is victorious over all of this. He's made a spectacle of it. He's ending evil and will eradicate it once and for all. It's ultimately lost the battle even as it goes on. And we are in Christ. So if he's victorious, we become victorious. 
If he wins out over all of this stuff, we will win out over all of this stuff. Yes, there'll be skirmishes on every side. Yes, all the good things that we want to do will be contested by the enemy. But ultimately, he's just lashing out in a way that will not overturn the victory that's already been won. Do not be afraid as you consider this, but do be alert. There is stuff going on that we can't see, and it affects what we can see. A few verses that you might want to put to memory so that you've got them in your tool bag, if you like, as you go through life today. Because sometimes this stuff will find us, not just us finding it. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Notice that it says he's like a roaring lion because he's pretending to be something that he's not. He's pretending to have much bigger teeth than he really does. We've sung already of the Lion of Judah. He's the real lion. He's the one that wins out, not the enemy who pretends to be a lion looking for someone to devour. 1 John 4 verse 4 says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Jesus fills all those who submit to him as Lord. He fills them and he lives inside them. And greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. We do not need to be afraid, but we should be alert. Even when we were away two weeks ago or so, we were in a town that we've never been in before, going into various shops and just exploring. And we came past one shop and both me and Sarah just went, we're not going in there. We could see what was going on. We could see the kind of things that were being sold. We didn't want to be anywhere near it because we knew that it wasn't pointing to Christ. We knew that it was full of darkness rather than light. We went on holiday once to a city that loads of people love, but we got there. It was me and Sarah and a friend, and we just fell out. People that got on really well, we just weren't getting along at all. And from that city, for a part of our holiday, we went on a road trip to a different place. As soon as we got out of the city, it was, everything was fine again. And we had this amazing time. We don't know what was going on, but we sense that there was some spirit of division or something that was coming on us that was causing us to fall out with people that we're like best friends with and have been for ages. The guy who wrote this book, John Thompson, describes it like this. He says, if your life is a house which Jesus owns and inhabits if you're a Christian. Jesus' name is over the door. It's his. You belong to him. But open windows and doors meant that squatters could sometimes come in and have influence over a part of the house. Ultimately, it belongs to Jesus. Ultimately, your life belongs to Jesus. But if there are openings, footholds, squatters, if you like, can come in. They don't claim the whole thing. They're not the owner. But they can come sometimes and have influence over you. So what our job to do is to tidy up. It's to lock the windows. It's to reinforce the defenses. It's to eliminate their impact. And that's the ongoing work of walking with Jesus. What that might look like is repenting of sin. Confessing particularly habitual sin. Stuff that's been around for a long time. And resisting it and replacing it with something better. 
This might look like getting rid of anything unclean, anything that's pointing to something that isn't Jesus as a God, an idol. It might be part of that habitual sin. Get rid of it. Burn it. Be gone from it. Don't let it even linger around because we don't know the influence it has. Give the enemy no foothold in your life. And ultimately, it's often reaching out to other people to say, look, this is going on for me and I know it's not right and I want to shut the door to anything that this might bring with it. No one in scripture ever released themselves from a demon. This isn't a solo sport. This isn't something you can do to yourself. This is a a body thing. This is a, a communal thing that we do together in consultation with people who really know what they're talking about, as I'll mention in a minute. Talk to me, talk to Jason, talk to someone that you know and trust. We'll do it together. Because this isn't to shame anybody. This isn't so that you've necessarily done something wrong. There are people in Scripture who've been afflicted with evil spirits since their birth. They didn't do anything to bring it about. It was they're a victim and not a perpetrator. So talk to me because we want to see people released from this stuff, freed from it now and forever. Final thing then, what would we do to respond? Well, the first thing that I have to say clearly and firmly and without exception is do not delve into this stuff on your own. Nowhere in scripture does that happen. This isn't a solo crusade. This is a body ministry, the body of Christ, where we've all got a role to play. I'm not allowed to delve into this stuff on my own because we're in a church structure I have to work with and I love working with a deliverance team who understand this stuff and who've been trained in it. They work under the authority of the bishop whose authority I also work under. We don't delve into this on our own. We don't go in flippantly or lightheartedly. We go in sober-mindedly because we want to use everyone's gifts to discern what's really going on. Is this natural? Is this supernatural? We don't know. Sometimes they present very similarly. And we don't just get other people involved because we don't believe in it or we're scared of it. We do it because we want to get it right. We do it because we want to look after people who are at the heart of all of this. We do it because we want to do it carefully and thoroughly and with all the wisdom that God wants to bring, which so often is through other people who've been in this longer than we have. As I've said, this is teamwork. This is whole body ministry. The guy who wrote this book, his church has set about doing lots in this, and he says we need administrators to make sure that we're doing it properly. We need intercessors to pray over the whole thing. We need people with a gift of discernment to know Where is this really coming from? This is for all of us, in a sense, to play a part in. Even if you just pray every day, God, would you protect St. Peter's and its people? Would you surround them on every side and cause any evil that's affronting them to be gone in your name? You're involved in this in a great way. We need everyone, not a few, to run off on a solo crusade. And if you've got any questions about this now or into the future, if you think something of this might be going on in you or where you live or someone who's dear to you, come and speak to me. Like I say, I'll rope in the diocesan deliverance team. They're brilliant. We'll draw on their resources and we'll make a plan to see what we might do. I want to end just by quoting a bit from this wonderful book which reminds us what our role is in the big plans of God. John Thompson says, We, the church, are God's billboard announcing every demon's defeat. 
It was God's will to use small, weak, ineffective things in this world to display his greatness. The most apparently insignificant church, Bible study, gathering believers, is actually a bright and glaring spiritual announcement to every passing demon that their days are numbered and their defeat is inevitable. Jesus is Lord over everything. He has won the victory. He is destroying evil and he will end it once and for all upon his return. And he invites us to be in him, in Christ, to live in reliance on his Holy Spirit and to share in his victory over this and everything else now and forever.